Certainly it has been a very wild season of great need. So please do keep in prayer that a lot of our brothers and sisters are really suffering around us. I want to tell you at least about one real quick. And uh, because it is a kind of an issue. Um, we have, um, I don't know how many, have any of you heard in the news about this couple in China at the border of North Korea that were arrested for um, basically being spies. Have any of you heard this information? They're a Canadian couple, eh? And there is is a lot of talk, and I think that they're probably not going to hear a lot about it here, although you should. Uh, The couple, just so you know, and Daniel, we we might need another battery, just... I'm sorry, bro. Um, the, the couple is, are, are really good friends with a friend of mine, Tim Baker, who is uh, the overseer of Shepherd's... Uh, she- oh, I can't even think of what everything is called now. The House of Luke, the House of Love, um, Shepherd's Fields. It's um, the Timothy, um, Timothy Baker's just... The Philip Hayden Foundation is the umbrella organization, and what they've been doing over the many years is they've been taking special needs children that are orphaned from China that are left in basically in dying rooms, that are left in rooms to, to die because of the over 11 million orphans that are already there. And um, they take them and, and, and in many cases give them surgeries, uh, help them with that, and then share the love of Jesus with them, which is, which is beautiful. They've been told by government officials, you're taking out our rubbish. It's amazing to hear this. And so a lot of these kids, we're talking about born with cleft palates. I mean, things that are very correctable. So they fly in people from a lot of the places. The, the surgeons and so forth offer their time and their, their services for free. And the kids are often, in many cases, restored or brought to a place of, of no special need whatsoever. But always, always be classified in China as one. Um, I mean, some of the kids are like born with one aorta. There's very little you can do unless God intervenes with a miracle. And we've seen both. But he is really good friends with this couple. And this couple, just so you know, is a missionary couple. And they, are, they were arrested. And, and from the understanding of all this, this is the way it kind of plays out. Uh, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm so not political, so I don't understand all of this. But I do know that it seems to me that there was some form of accusation, probably likely so, about some form of hacking that had been done. Canadian officials had said something about China. And China responds. And this couple had been there for over 26 years, ran a coffee house, had been perfect citizens, have had no citations of any sort over the last 26 years, and then all of a sudden were captured and arrested. The, the, if they were fine, if they're going to be found guilty of this, just so you know, it's, there, there's only two options. It's execution or life imprisonment without parole. So um, we'd love your prayers of what God wants to do with this couple. They did not see it coming. Um, and, I mean, just in, co- in communication with them and with Tim, it's just pretty obvious that this is a pretty wild event, and which takes us right to our text in, in a lot of ways. But let's pray for them specifically, and for Saeed. Many of you are familiar with Saeed, who is still in prison in Iran. Um, this man has been responsible for seeing literally thousands of people come to know Christ in Iran. And he has been arrested for being a traitor to the state. It's an Islamic state. And so when a person converts, it's considered high treason, which is the highest uh, form of, of act of treason in the sight of an Islamic nation is for a person to give their life to Christ. So uh, this man, because he's been the one they call responsible for it, they've been torturing him for, over, uh, for well over a year. And uh, 
Anyway, so we want to, let's keep them in our, let's put them in prayer right now, because it tells us, by the way, to pray for those who are in chains as if chained to them, so, or chained with them. So, um, we pray with me, and then we'll get into our text. Lord, there's a lot of things we would want to pray. Certainly, Lord, we'd love to just, in our simplest short view of this, we'd just love to see them completely removed from any problems, any suffering, any anything, and just to be set free. I know, Lord, for Saeed, his wife and his children, um, I mean, he went and just never came back. And she has been so busy trying to let the world know. Lord, for this precious couple who really just doesn't, they apparently just did, never saw anything coming and all of a sudden they were just swooped upon and Lord, now here they are in prison where their uh, temporary future really just seems very unclear. And Lord, I, I thank you that with Saeed and with this couple that their eternity is clear. There is no question at all about where they're going eternally. But Lord, the, the, the route there on the other hand is in question and I pray right now for your hand to, to come upon them. And Lord, whether that is you want to just perform a complete and absolute jailbreak like you did with Peter in the book of Acts or whether you really just want to put them in a position where you're going to start saving just globs of people in their incarceration, Lord, I just pray that you would work your hand in such a way that you'd be glorified and that you would protect them from the lies, from the infiltration, from the tainting of the wicked one who would clearly want to accuse you and others as a result of it. So, Lord, please set them free in the most important ways. And here in this room, Lord, as we now take a look at these first handful of verses, Lord, my heart's desire is that your word would burst open and captivate us. I mean, just captivate every one of us. Lord, whether we've ever read your word before or whether we feast on it like it's all you can eat. Lord, put us in that place tonight where we genuinely hear you. Every one of us genuinely hear you. And in that, Lord, please, right now, speak to us so deeply, so rightly. Lord, that we just want to we just want to praise you and we'd find you and know how you found us in this. And in this area, Lord, where it's going to touch our hearts if we let it, Lord, let our hearts be touchable tonight. Thank you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to do through me what I cannot humanly do. And speak now. We're listening. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible always be the authority for which you hold all things true and false. Read with me, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, which is today Greece. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, 
It is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we also trust he will still deliver us. You pray with me, please. Lord, as we've prayed now, open our hearts to your word as we open your word. Please, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to this church tonight. Jesus, in your name. Amen. It's been several years since Paul had planted this church. Paul on a second missionary trip. And I want to remind you, it wasn't like Paul read the book of Acts and knew what was going to happen to him. On his second missionary trip, he had planted a church in this area that is a hotbed for lasciviousness. This is the place you went to sin. So it's sort of that whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's the idea. It was the place where people worshipped the goddess of pleasure and women and, and sex and drugs and whatever you, were, you wanted that was in a sinful way was not only available, you pretty much went there for it. I mean, so much so that if any of us were to have said, I'm going to Corinth and, you, and you, they thought you were going alone, you would question, you would assume that the person was going for the wrong reason. So much so that people like Homer or even people like Josephus, when they called someone a Corinthian, it was a slam on their moral character. It was assumed that if you were called that, you were called a person with no morals, a person with no scruples. That was the idea. And Paul planted a church right there. And this was a church like any place that's known for something. The church will either try to become like the culture around it or will swing completely to the opposite and have nothing to do with it and doesn't engage it to influence it if it's not careful. And Paul is seeing both. Here now Paul is writing. He has written his first letter. Of course, that's 1 Corinthians. And as he's written it, there were some problems in the church. There was division there were people kind of grabbing a hold of, I'm of Paul because Paul had planted the church. I'm of Apollos because he was a gifted speaker who had come into town and had followed after Paul. Uh, there were some that were saying, well, I'm of Peter. And uh, there are some and who, by the way, of course, is one of the original 12 that had followed Christ. Uh, and there are some that just said, well, I'm just of Jesus. And there was this argument over this, these divisions, because the church had become a place of competition. It had become a place where we came to think about us. Not to think about others and certainly not to think about Jesus. And Paul nails it by saying, you guys are carnal. You should be looking more like Jesus. And you guys aren't looking anything like you guys look like you've never got saved in the first place. He doesn't doubt their salvation. He doesn't say that. But he does say you sure look like unsaved people. But not only were there a problem, by the way, what the the church was known for in its simplest sense, and it's three things that seem to be the symptoms in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, was that it was known for being selfish and competitive with itself and others. It was known for its entitlement mindset for which even Christians were suing other Christians. And it was known for its openness and its applauding itself for its tolerance. That doesn't sound much different from a lot of the church today. That's debating over things that the Bible clearly speaks against. 
but applies itself for its tolerance. And yet, ironically, we'll tolerate sin, but we'll be intolerant to each other's personalities. That's like, I don't mind you doing whatever you want that's wrong as long as you don't do it wrong to me. That's kind of the mindset here because we're all selfish and if we're all selfish and we don't come to die, then what it is is it's the church. We might as well go to the club because that's kind of the idea here. So Paul nails it with that. This sexual lasciviousness, this, this tolerance was that this man was sleeping even with his mother or his stepmother because it says his father's wife. Paul's response to that was kick the guy out of the church. Not permanently with the idea that never have anything to do with them, but here's the simplest. If the guy wants to live in that lifestyle, let him know it doesn't play like that in the house of God. Could you imagine what would happen if that happened today? How many would call you judgmental? Who do you think you are, righteous, self-righteous, holier than thou, judging everybody, thinking you're cooler than everyone? Who do you think you are? Ironic, they'd be judging you and saying that you have a problem because you judge someone else. And in all of that, Paul, the point of it, he says that his body would be burned, but his soul would be spared. See, the idea of it is if a person really wants to play fun for the world, but saving for God, they're really not embracing eternal life like Christ offered. He says, let them go out into the world and get all they want of that. And when they're done with that, let them come back. This letter proves that that works. Now, I'm not talking about a person you have that you don't like them because they sing off-key or because they're, they snort when they laugh or because they do something you're not, you know, they rub paper and you don't like the sound of it or they chew with their mouth open. We're talking about genuine sin here. We're talking about not just seeing a sin, but a person that is in a lifestyle of that sin and telling everybody else it's okay. Oh, Whatever. So the Bible says that it only says it 14 times. How many times does something have to be say it's wrong for it to be? You drive past one speed limit sign, you say, I only saw one. Are you still going to get your fine? Your citation? So understand, by this second letter, we're going to see by chapter 2 that that particular gentleman has gone, he's come back, and he's come back repentant. And the response to that, by the way, is threefold. There are three responsibilities we have with a person who's come back who is repentant and humble and penitent. And by the way, it is certainly welcome him back home. Love on him. Comfort him, lest he be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Forgive the guy. So there is that in there. But while all of this is happening, somebody has creeped into the church, or a group have creeped into the church, and have become the name it, claim it, the blab it and grab it group. You know, the group that says that no matter what the case is, you'll never, you should never be sick if you follow God. You should never be poor if you follow God. You know, if you're really going to follow God, certainly God's blessings are all temporal. So certainly you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll never, your wife will never miscarry. You'll have lots of children. You'll never get fired. You'll never miss your bus. As a matter of fact, when you walk outside, it'll stop raining until you get in the bus. It'll start raining when you're in there, perhaps, and then it'll stop when you walk over to the train, which will never be late. It'll never be canceled, and everything's going to be zippity-doo-dah. The problem is Paul, the guy who planted the church, has been beat up, shipwrecked, smacked around, beaten, stoned, whipped, and he's not very wealthy, and if he gets money, he's giving it to the poor church in Judea. And the guy has got some kind of physical ailment. The guy is a mess on the outside, but he is thriving on the end. 
And the church now, because of the influence of these guys, and you can find them on TV and they come on tour here as well. Everything that they have is for sale. And with that, they're going to tell you the same thing. If God really blessed you, you would never be jobless. You'd never be, you'd never not find the house you're looking for. And if you ask the girl out, of course she would say yes, if you're a God. And then all of a sudden you deal with a hardship and you are stuck with the problem of suffering. Paul wastes no time on that subject matter. In the first ten verses, he goes right for the jugular. Paul will actually, by the end of the book, tell us that his suffering is actually proof of his calling. Ironically, these people have gotten to the point, much like some of the church today, that they were asking for Paul's credentials. Paul, if you really are this guy that you called yourself to be, where's your seminary degree? Where's your doctorate in divinity? What universities back you up? Paul's response is, you want a letter of commendation? You're my letter of commendation. Aren't you the proof of my ministry? And it's one thing for a place that's never heard of or never known Paul to say, let me see your credentials. It's another thing to be at a church you've planted, go back and they think, we don't even know if you're actually even called to be a pastor or an apostle or a church planner or whatever. You know, we don't know that you're called to preach the gospel, although they got saved because you preached the gospel. Well, they got saved when you did. So in these ten verses, we're approaching this area of suffering. There are two primary words for suffering. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Um, the first, by the way, we see in verse 4 where we see the word tribulation. And it's also said here is trouble. Same verse. Same Greek word. is the word thlipsis. Would you say thlipsis? Come on, there's more than you that, more of you than me. Thlipsis. Thlipsis means pressure. This particular word is the idea that you're feeling pressure on all sides. You feel pressure about going forward. You feel pressure about staying. You feel pressure from your family. You feel pressure about bills. You feel pressure because of a relationship gone raw awry. You feel pressure because a relationship might go right. You feel pressure because somebody at the job's getting weird on you. You feel pressure because all of a sudden something got really wonky. You feel pressure because, and you get the idea. And if that's you today, I'm so glad you're here. And we have that here in verse 4 used twice. In verse 5, see the word suffering there. That is the word pathema. Would you say pathema? Pathema, that's a little better, means something you have to work through that's difficult. A hardship. Something painful. Something you have to get through. So we have these two words that are going to be used. In verse 6, when it says, if we are afflicted, that's our word phlebo. Same idea sleeps this, same base word, and it means to be crowded in. We endure the same suffering, that's the word pathema, of which you also suffer. That's the word pasco, very similar from that word pathema. In verse 7, partakers of suffering, pathema. 
in verse 8, our trouble we had in, in Asia, that's Thlipsis. Those words are consistent throughout this whole thing. Do you see what I'm saying? If you are in a situation tonight, or situations, plural, or you're feeling pressure, dang it, I know I better have a job, I better get the money, how am I going to pay the bills? That's pressure. What am I going to do if I see that person again? What would I say? That's pressure. Oh my goodness, I have to see that person. That's pressure. I have to go see the dentist. That's probably pressure. Then I have to pay the bill for the dentist. That's pressure. And then I hope that crown or whatever stays in my mouth. There could be pressure there too. Or it's an abortion. And when you walk through and you hear the child crying and you think that could have been mine, it's something to endure. That's our second one. When you go to sleep at night and the pain is still fresh because that person said, it's not you, it's me. And as cliche as it is, it still hurts. Or you go to sleep at night and you're still struggling with that same sin and you realize, oh no, it's me. And it's your enduring. Or those moments when it gets quiet and your past flies up in your face. And all you can see is your failure, your regret, your weakness. And something inside of you, you hear the voice of the enemy saying, you'll never be more than that. You'll always be weak. You'll always be defeated. You'll never be a man. You'll never be a woman. You'll never be free. That is something to endure. And that's our second one. Well then, welcome to the school of learning from God's Word. Nobody other than Jesus would be more equipped to write this book than I'm aware of than this guy. And we'll see why in a moment. Verses 1 and 2, and they're simple. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. That's God's sending. It's interesting. In the first letter, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. In the first one, he had with him a buddy named Sosthenes. It always seems like Paul has with him a guy that he takes with him. I like that. I've learned from Paul in this. In the second one, it's Timothy, another protege he's taken to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Both letters say that. In the first one, he says also, those who are sanctified in Christ called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here it simply says, with all the saints who are in Achaia or Greece. And then the greetings, the same, the Siamese twins, we might be of the greeting grace and peace, because you can't have peace without grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he jumps in. That's all. No quick, no long hello. That's basically it. And then we jump in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we even go any farther, you need to recognize something unique about this God you serve. And me too, by the way. I need to recognize it as well. And that is that this God you serve and this God that I serve is blessed. Now understand what blessed means. Blessed does not mean a circumstance. It doesn't mean that you are now in a situation that things are good. That is the way that some people are trying to teach. 
That's probably the way that it was being taught in the church in Corinth, but Paul's taking it back to where it belongs. And that is, you are not blessed because you have stuff. Blessed is a state of your spirit, the attitude of your heart. The word in the Greek, by the way, in the New Testament, is the word makaros. And the word, or markos, and it means, in the simplest sense, stoked. We could say happy. The problem is happy is based on the word happening. And some would like to say it bounces off a lot. But the idea is quite simple. You're in a state of joyful contentedness. And that's the idea. And I, and, and I, I know we have moments, right? Where the problem is happiness is based on circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, doesn't have to be. Because our circumstances all revolve around God's position in our, in our, in our being. But I want you to recognize, to be blessed, that smile is on your face. And you're breathing it. It is your condition. And perhaps you've had those moments where you're like, today is a blessed day. I've been blessed today. And usually there's some circumstance you might use to revolve around it. But in the end of it all, I'm assuming that your emotional state is a good one while you're saying that. But have you ever thought of God that way? Because at least 40 different times in one manner or another, God's going to be called blessed. He doesn't say, may God be blessed. He says, blessed be, or literally, God is blessed. And yet he's going to be talking about suffering. Have you ever thought that the emotional state of God is one of blessed? When I come to God, is he like arms crossed, looking at me through the corner of his eye, like, what are you really doing? Because God actually delights in mercy and in the prayers of the saints in issuing not only mercy but righteousness, making me right with Him. Jeremiah 9 taught me that. That He rejoices over me with singing. My God's blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. We're talking about the Father here. The God of all Comfort. Now we get to the other side of the coin. On one side we see these words, these words for tribulation and trouble and suffering and afflicted. But now we see this word that's used on the other side. And the word here for comfort, some of you might be familiar with, is the word paraklesis. Can you say paraklesis? Para means beside. To paraglide, you have a glider beside you or you're on it. Parenthesis, parathesis, paragraph, beside the writing, paragraphos means to write. Para means with or beside, and the word kalejo, klesis kalejo, means to be called. So the word means to be called beside. I'd like you to think about somebody that comes to your side. Why such a thing would be needed. So the word is often defined, it all depends on your translation, counselor or comforter. But the word is quite simple in that. Because idea is simple. That he is coming alongside you. Imagine the idea of somebody wrapping their arm around you, not in a creepy stalker way, but in a way to quiet or comfort you. As a matter of fact, Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God will quiet us with his love. And if you've had good parents, you know what this is. It's the storm or the whatever that freaks out the child. And the child 
doesn't want a sermon or a lecture on why they shouldn't fear at that moment. All they want is to feel safe. And what happens is a parent in their love takes that child, pulls them into their lap, wraps their arms around them, doesn't have to say a word, and the child gets quieted in their love. It's the same idea that Jesus says when he says, how long have I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks? Pulling you under my wing. David would say, on my bed I remember you. I think of you in the watches of the night because you are my help. I will sing under the shadow of your wing. And I get the idea. You just feel safe wrapped in God's arms. Safe in his embrace. That is the word that is used here for comfort. In verse 4, it is used one, two, three, four times in one way or another. In verse 5, it is used again. In verse 6, it is used one, two, three different times in one way or another. In verse 7, it is used once again. I think God's trying to tell us something. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He's Jesus' Father. He's mercy's Father. And He's the God of some comfort. You should be correcting me. Yeah, thank you. Yes, He's not the God of some comfort. Scripture says He's the God of how much? All comfort. Now, you're probably aware of the fact the Greek word for all is simply means all. It shouldn't be a very difficult word. All means all. All comfort means if there's any comfort that's needed of any sort, guess who is the God of it? And this is what we read. Verse 4. And I want you to read this carefully because it is one of the most abused scriptures in text. Who comforts us in, notice the next word, what is it? Let me say that again. Who comforts us in, what's the word? Okay, I think you got more in you than that. Who comforts us in all our lipsies? Every pressure. It doesn't matter what the pressure is, I know where the comfort comes from. No matter what the comfort is, no matter how much, I'm sorry, no matter what the pressure is, no matter how much the pressure is, no matter what direction it's coming from, no matter how severe, no matter how intense, no matter how deep, no matter how great, no question about it, all the comfort you need is found in one place. And anything that competes with that is then God's enemy. In that position. The bottle. Internet pornography. Finding the next relationship. Trying to be important. Whatever it is. If that's where we go when we feel pressure, it is replacing God. And He is not hip on that. Even our friends. If we are going to be good friends then we are a bus and not the destination. And someone says, I'm feeling a lot of pressure. I says, well, then why don't I take you to the one who knows how, who is all the comfort we need in any pressure? Does that make sense, beloved? That part we may get and we go, yeah, intellectually I can grab a hold of. But listen to the rest of it. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in, what's the next word? Any trouble. Sleepsy, same word. Same pressure, same word. With the comfort, paraclesis, for which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here is the point, beloved. The way that people usually try to make this verse sound is that God comforts us in our suffering or our pressure so that we can comfort others who are in the same kind of problem. Isn't that the way it gets quoted normally? So what happens is simple. Some person comes in and they have just lost a loved one. And the first thing we want to do is scramble to find someone who's lost a loved one. Now, no doubt there can be girth there. But you just disqualified yourself, right? If you, I mean, it's like, how do I as a pastor minister to a girl who's been raped? I mean, can I just be that bold? How do I minister to a poor gal who's lost her child in miscarriage? Because the word for comfort is what? Paraclesis. Called beside, right? Am I the God of any comfort? No. I'm not any God. I am the bus. I am the lorry. And without proper baggage, without proper, you know, what I'm supposed to be carrying, I'm a dangerous thing. See, the reason why I can be used to minister to any, any situation, the reason why you could be used to minister to any situation is because you know where the comfort is found. And you are not it. The issue is not that I have to be the hypodermic. It's that I get to be the bus that says, look it, I don't know what that feels like, but I know what it feels like to feel pressure, to feel pain, to feel suffering, and I know where that comfort can be found. Can I take you there? Because everything else, and this is the danger with finding the person that has gone through the exact same situation or a similar situation, as they would be the least likely, unless they're careful and mature, to actually take them to Christ first, because they would be more likely to lean on their own circumstances first. Does that make sense? And that becomes the problem in the church is that we stopped doing what the disciples did back in Matthew 4, which is where we thought it didn't matter what their problem was. If I could get them to Jesus, he could fix them. And, and, but I've never been possessed. Good. Should, you, should we be sad about that? And then you see somebody on the street and you go, that guy might be possessed. I need to go find an ex-possessed guy. What do you Google it? You know the one who delivers. And you know the God who delivers. So let me lay out some ground rules real quick here. And we're going to we'll develop from this point on. But listen to these quick five quick points. And you can challenge me on them. But you need to recognize that I'm pulling them right out of Scripture. Here's the first of them. 
Jesus promised that every person would suffer. And the story or the parable he gives about the two houses, one built on the sand, one built on the rock. The difference is those who hear his word and don't do it and those who hear his word and do it. Those who, I mean, hearing the word doesn't make a good house. Hearing the word gives you the opportunity, if you act upon it, to build your house on the rock. But in both cases, the rains came, the floods rose, and the winds beat against the house. Jesus promised that it didn't matter where your house was built, the rain's still going to fall. And he says he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The wind is still going to beat. The flood is still going to rise. The issue is not that. That's not the variable. The variable is whether the house will stand. Jesus even said to his disciples in John 16, 33, In the world you will, not might, or it's possible, or if you've really holy, you'll never have to suffer. You will have tribulation. The word tribulation, by the way, a Latin word that comes from the word tribulum, which means, by the way, is a threshing sledge. That's that thing that they ride on when they picked all of their wheat that's got stones and pieces of broken things on the bottom so it cracks everything so you can get the wheat out. And he goes, that's what tribulation is, man. It's being thrown, we might say being put on the rack, but it's like you're thrown down and being crushed into pieces. That's the word he uses here. Because Jesus promised everyone would suffer, number two, Jesus then never promised Christians wouldn't suffer, but actually promised we would. Back in that verse, the issue is not that. He says again in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but he says, but cheer up. And praise God he didn't stop there. Because what a horrible command that would be. Hey, you're going to get run over and threshed and thrashed. Hey, cheer up. He says, I've overcome the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 9, to resist the devil, knowing, which tells me a little bit what the devil's trying to tell us, knowing that the same sufferings you experience are being experienced by all your brotherhood in the world. By your brotherhood in the world. Paul, when he actually goes to back and strengthen the churches, says in Acts 14.22, after he had planted some of the churches, and he goes back to visit them, he says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3.4, Paul says, in fact, we told you even that when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, and just as it happened, just as you know. Paul at the last letter, you would say, well, maybe he was just young and he was learning. Well, if he had learned by his last letter, he's about to die. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And the word is suffer. He doesn't even say you've accomplished it. That's the part that stinks. If he said, all who have accomplished living godly in Christ will suffer persecution, and then I get persecuted, I'd go, oh, awesome, I've accomplished living godly in Christ. Because the moment you even desire it, it's amazing what's going to come out of the woodwork. The guy that you've always liked, ladies, and all of a sudden you're going, you know what, I'm going to live for Christ. All of a sudden, the guy that wouldn't give you the time of day now says, hey, I'm really thinking you're cute. Huh, funny how that happened. Or someone like a, a loved one looks and goes, you know, yeah, okay, I know you got religion, that's cool, but don't go crazy with that stuff. You know what I've learned? You can't walk on water until you go overboard. As a matter of fact, it gets worse because Jesus told us we were even called to suffer. 
And First Peter 2, 21, listen to this carefully. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. For to this that you were called, for to this you were called, Christ Jesus suffered, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Philippians 1.29, Paul says to the Philippians, For it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know what's amazing? Because you know that if you are suffering, that the, the spirit of glory rests upon you, Paul would tell us. That those same disciples in Acts 5.41, after getting beat up, You like that word? That's one of my favorites about To, oh, awesome. To be excluded. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be invited to the party so I could say no. I don't want to not be invited. I want to be the, I want to be the one to say no. I don't want, because otherwise I'm like, well, why didn't they invite me? And you know, that can happen in those places too where everyone's like, well, we're all sort of Christian, but we're going to, you know, you're not going to like it anyway. You know, you're like, well, cool. Well, why don't you invite me so I can say no and prove you? Right. Well, well, understand, Jesus says, listen to this. He says, when they persecute in such a way, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, jump for joy. Now, I want you to recognize that was actually not a suggestion. That was a command. Any of you ever do that one? Try that one out. When you are persecuted for the word of God. So ready? Stand up. This is rehearsal time. Yes. Stinking American pastor makes me do things that embarrass me. You got to do it with everyone else. It's like choir. Everyone looks silly, but you all look silly together. I'm going to mock persecuting you. Your job is to shout for joy, to leap for joy. That's the idea. So that it won't, when it happens, see, wow, you're already getting ready. Ready? Here we go. Do you really, are you really closed-minded enough to believe that Jesus is the only way? What kind of closed-minded bigot are you? Some of you are getting it. Some of you are getting it. There you go. Oh, you probably hate all gay people. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's, oh, religion's all about wars and all that stuff. I mean, if people didn't have any kind of God or any religion, there probably wouldn't be any wars in the world. You're probably one of those people, you wouldn't even, like, shoot everybody. Oh, yeah. What are you going to tell me, like, you're, like, some just kind of closed mind. Do you really believe in, a, like, a worldwide flood? I mean, come on, really? I mean, come on, what kind of stupid person really reads that Bible? Don't you know it's written by men and it's full of errors? I've never read it, but I'm sure you're just dumb to read it. Okay, why am I losing steam here? I haven't lost steam. I've just begun to persecute you. You guys are losing steam. You want to hear stuff like what Balachim heard from Balach, right? Like, oh, you know, you would be really rich if you'd learn, if you weren't like so busy being close-minded in that real religious thing you do. 
right? See, that's how you see that I'm before I get this any worse. Listen, Jesus knew something that the moment you start getting that kind of heat, now I'm not talking about being a giant jerk and getting persecuted for it, but I'm talking about that you are representing Christ properly. And as a result of that, people are flying at you. Understand Jesus is as a result of that. You've graduated to a level that's applaudable in the kingdom of heaven. And if your eyes are on the kingdom of heaven, you're making the team. Not just the guys that redshirt or sit on the bench. You're actually playing the game. And I've never, I've never tried out for a team because what I wanted to do was sit on a bench. I wanted to start. I wanted to be the star player, but that I'm kind of that guy. So listen, number one, Jesus promised everyone would suffer. Number two, therefore, Jesus never promised Christians wouldn't suffer. So if somebody tells you you'll never suffer or you'll always be healed if you have enough faith, well, then either Paul doesn't have enough faith, Jesus didn't have enough faith, or they're lying to you. Because Jesus suffered wounds that didn't heal. How do I know that? Because even in the book of Revelation, when they look at the lamb, it's as if he'd been slaughtered, and they recognize him by his scars. Note that. Number three. Jesus never promised us or told us we were entitled to a life of comfort. He promised to be my comfort in this life. He never promised me a life of comfort. He never told me I was entitled to a life of comfort. He told me that he would be my comfort in this life. Second Corinthians 1.3, as we read, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Jesus said about us being heavy laden in Matthew 11.28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Number four, and I'll move quickly. Jesus did promise that what the Lord does to be our comfort in this soil of moments like this would bloom into a glorious ministry. Listen. Jesus promised your suffering will always be for purpose. And the Soil those moments are planted in would bloom into a very good and deep and meaningful ministry. He tells us here that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any trouble because we've already received comfort. But how could you possibly need to receive comfort unless you need to receive comfort? So we could say, even as the psalmist would say in Psalm 66, 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what God has done and what he has done for my soul. Could we say, in all honesty, as it says in Psalm 32, 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble, and you will surround me with songs of deliverance. How do we know? We can know it intellectually, but man, we don't speak with the same conviction as when we need it. There was a song I wrote a long time ago called Personal. And the whole idea of the song is that I knew so much, but I wanted my faith to be personal. I wanted to take possession of it. And I remember even, and it actually had come from reading John 8 and the woman caught in adultery. And just thinking, what would it be like to see that kind of power? And I remember the line that um, was written that still resonates in my heart is, I believe this sinful woman looked into the eyes of grace, but it's really just a story till I'm right there in her place. Like, yeah, it's a great story and I know it's true, but man, the moment I'm looking at it, it says, will you forgive me now and show me how to make my faith personal? 
I was like, I want desperately. I don't want to be a woman caught in adultery. I mean, there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's all kinds of levels wrong with that. But I want to see every sin that I'm even tempted by, every sin, like one that would drag me out there and make me stare into the face of that God. And when I do cry out forgiveness, I want to hear the sound of those stones falling. And the touch of a God who pulls me up and says, who's condemned you now? But I also know the challenge of the Lord who would tell me, go and sin no more. The last of the five, and then we'll close up, but we'll move through that text. Is that the Lord often forges the greatest of ministries in the crucible of suffering. We want powerful, deep, meaningful ministry, but we don't want the route to get there. Yet Paul would say, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering that I would know the power of his resurrection. Isn't that what he said? See, what Paul knew is you can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. Paul knows death is not going to come easy. Oh, yeah, in regards to the cross, sure, we said yes to Jesus. Our sinful verdict died. But that sinful person, that's the body of death that hangs on us. Oh, that I would not crave in any way to be near it. Abraham spent a hundred childless years. A fourth of that was in the promise of his heritage. Joseph, sold by his family, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, all to be raised up to save Gentile and Jew alike. Moses, Hebrews 11.25 says, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. David spent half of his life running for it before he became king. Isaiah's murder... Jeremiah's constant rejection, Ezekiel's deportation, the three Hebrew boys at the furnace, Job's torture, Daniel's lions, Jesus' is immeasurable suffering. Show me the person in Scripture that's life was completely easy and absent of suffering. Why and how could we possibly relate to them? If there was a person that seemed like everything was going well, we would envy them but would not relate. And the world out there is looking to relate. And we're trying to find ways to relate to them. And we can find sin to do that. We can find carnality to do that. Or to be honest, the Lord can ordain suffering and they can relate to us in those moments. But then they'll see how we suffer different than they do. And we as Christians are called to suffer different than they do. Paul's suffering? In chapter 1, verse 80 says here, we despaired even of life. Do you know what that means? We were convinced, literally, the word for despair means to, to count utter loss. I mean, we, I was convinced I was going to die. That's what he said. Is that suffering? 4.8 says, hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, he called himself. And 6.4, starting in 6.4, he talks about tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, fastings, dishonor, evil report, deceivers, chastens, called deceivers. Living as poor, as poor. God want you rich? Yes. But if you think the best riches that he has to give you is money, you are selling God short. In 2 Corinthians 7.5, he said that they were, he was troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts and inside were fears. In chapter 11 of the same letter, verse 23, he says he labored more abundantly, stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, deaths offered. He says from the Jews he received 
Forty stripes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day in the deep. Perils of water. Perils of robbers. Perils of his own countrymen. Perils of the Gentiles. Perils of the city. Perils of the wilderness. Where could this guy go and not get peril? Peril in the sea. Peril among false brethren. And weariness, toil, sleeplessness often. Fastings often. Cold and naked. Is this a guy that would teach you a prosperity doctrine? Yes. But not the prosperity of this world's pleasures, but a greater. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, after all the revelation he seemed to have gotten, he says that a thorn in his flesh was given him, for which he pleaded three times with God that it might depart from him. But the Lord answered, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness in his response. Therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. I take pleasure in my infirmities. How do you like that kind of attitude? Do you think the guy's gone mental? Yippee! I got some more infirmities. And reproaches and needs, persecution, distresses for Christ's sake because, listen, this is why, because when I am weak, then I'm strong. And I look at the Corinthians suffering. You know what we have in this letter? 123, it says, to spare you, I came no, to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Because I would make you sad. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, if I made you sorrowful. Chapter 7, verse 8, it says, even if I made you sorry with my letter. That's all the suffering we have recorded in the scripture. Although he says, you share in it here. You know, it's interesting. In 8.14, it says, as Paul talks about making a collection, he says, when you guys were actually really down financially, there were other churches I used to help you. He goes, now, listen, now at this time of your abundance... Your abundance may supply their lack when he talks about getting a collection to actually help somebody else out. So you know what it sounds like? Corinthians are at a time of surplus. They're in a season of surplus. And because of that, somebody's saying, look at God's clearly blessing you and real blessed people never suffer. They're never poor. They're never ill. And the problem is at this particular moment, they seem to be less ill. They seem to be less. And you go, oh, well, see, there are the proofs in the pudding. I'm like, I'll tell you what. If that's the case, would you rather be before God as Paul or some one of these guys? So listen, as we go back to our text and close this up. If you've received comfort for anything, for any pressure, for anything you've had to go through. Hey, you know what? It may not even be that huge in, in your opinion that someone else may look at it and go, that's it. And you hear about someone else that's watched their friends die or... Or, you know, been shot at or whatever the case is. And you're like, man, that's just not my story. Have you felt pressure? Have you had to endure? Have you had to make your way through it? Have you gotten comfort through that from Christ? Then you can comfort anyone in any trouble. Because it isn't you. You can comfort them because you can take them to the comforter. Does that make sense? Hey, if I had a sleeping bag that can handle way, way, way below zero, and I've never experienced frostbite, but I know that that would be for, and I've never been to Siberia, to Yakutsk, where it gets so cold that your breath freezes before you breathe it. And somebody's going to Siberia in one of those places, and I had that sleeping bag to give them. Could I say, yeah, but I don't know if I could give this to you because I've never been that cold. If I trust the sleeping bag, 
I can still help them even though I've never been that cold. Does that make sense? Because the issue isn't me. It's what I'm administering. Listen to this verse, beloved, and please don't miss this. We're almost done. Please be patient with me. Verse 6. If we're afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. And consolation is that same word, by the way, paraclesis. Salvation, by the way, means rescue or wholeness, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which you, we also suffer. If we're comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation as well. Now, don't miss this, guys. Please listen. What he tells us here is that Paul's heart constantly revolves around these guys. Whether it's suffering or comfort, he's thinking about how it could be used to bless them. Do you see that? But listen to the verse beforehand, because this is where it hinges on. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation also abounds through Christ. Listen. Here's what you learn from a simple verse. As suffering increases, so does God's comfort. And God does not allow your suffering to surpass his available comfort. Let me say that again. Hear it with your heart, beloved. God will not allow your suffering to surpass his available comfort. Listen, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. You know what that means? More than we can handle. Our consolation also abounds to Christ. We have a little bit of suffering. We have enough comfort, abundant comfort. If we have abundant suffering, we have abundant comfort. So listen, if I'm going to be afflicted, and there's our word again, the word to feel crowded in and pressured on every side, flebo, it's so that you can receive comfort. And it's so that you can be made whole and rescued. Because someday you may suffer like this too, or you may suffer and you go, I know how to handle that suffering. If I'm comforted and you see that, I'm going to use that to comfort you. And I'm going to use that to see you rescued and made whole. So, man, if I go through something, here's the dangerous thing. A Christian, hey, let's face it, you go through something and you want to go and lock yourself up in a cave. You don't want anyone to see you suffer because, after all, who wants to see you as a mess? And in that particular moment, what we'll do is we'll find everything else but Christ to lean on because we can. We know that if we're going to be around other people, there's a challenge for us to actually put it up or shut up about Jesus. And so we know if we're around other people, it's like, you know what, I'm going to have to be real about this thing and get on this and say, you know what, this is a rough time and I'm going to lay on Christ like I need to for the sake not only of myself, because I don't want to just think about me, but for your sake. I've had the death of a brother while being a pastor. And I can't hide from that. We've had people gone mental on us that we've loved dearly, and we didn't run and hide from that. Because we knew that even in those moments, if Christ is in our comfort, we're never going to make it. And if I really believe, and I do, then I have nothing to fear. Our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, and I'm not too even sure what that means yet, what suffering they were suffering, you can also partake in the consolation as well. You see, they come hand in hand. The difference between a, being a Christian and being anything else. Listen, listen, listen. How are you going to get Buddha beside you? How are you going to get Muhammad beside you? How are you going to get Hare Krishna beside you? 
Jesus lives inside of you. I don't have to worry about where my comfort comes. My suffering will never be without comfort. Listen, your suffering as Christians will never have to be without comfort. Your suffering will never have to be without comfort. Your suffering will never have to be without comfort. So it ends with this. We do not want you to be ignorant, brother, that our trouble, that's our word, which we had in Asia, we were burdened beyond measure. Literally, we were weighed, by, we were weighed beyond, we were overthrown with the weight above our own strength. Dunamis, by the way, there, for strength. We despaired even of life. The sentence of death in ourselves, but let me tell you why. So we wouldn't trust in ourselves. You see, there has to get a point where it's heavier than you can carry because if you can carry it, you won't. You, you, may, you just may try. Versus laying it down before the Lord. And if it gets too heavy for you to carry, sooner or later you're going to have to throw it down. And the Lord's waiting for you to do that. So is it something from your past? Is it a struggle with a sin? Is there a person that you just can't get past? Is it yourself you just can't get past? Is it whatever it is? Is it a fear that owns you? Is it failure? Or is it just, the, your, you know, it's like, you hear about how you have to have a good view of yourself, but every time you think about yourself, you hate yourself. Well, let me just say, what you need is more, you don't need self-esteem. You need Christ-esteem. Because if you could see through Christ's eyes, you would see how precious you are. And you don't even have to feel good about yourself. If you keep your eyes on Christ, you'll see how valuable you really are. But if I don't have to trust in myself, but I'm going to trust in God who raises the dead, He delivered us already from so great a death. I mean, if He could deliver me from eternity of death... Wouldn't he deliver me from everything else that he needs to? And he does deliver me. In fact, we trust he still will. As we go to prayer, beloved, listen, tonight. I don't know what it is, but you do. The challenges, the fears, the resentments, the, the, the Goliaths, whatever they are. Maybe they're new Goliaths. Maybe they're Goliaths that you haven't fought because you're just looking across the place where you know God has for you, but it's fearful because you're like, how can I get across that? I feel so small. It looks so big. Isn't that what Israel did? But isn't it he who's supposed to fight our battles? Hasn't he already taken down death, Satan? What, what should we be afraid of if he's fighting our battles? So is there something in front of you, the giants of the land, that God has for you? Is that the battle? It's the battle of your past that keeps catching up with you. Is the battle so tempestuous inside of you, but you know in the end of it all, you just feel like I'm always just going to, this is just going to be who I am. I'm always going to be, and the word that's going to be next is not a good one. I'm here to let you know tonight, my God wants to bring you through this. And he wants to be your comfort. But that means we need to lay down other comforts. The girls, the guys, the emptiness, the drugs, the whatever it is that we try to lean on. See, the difference is we can find things and make them a crutch or we can let Christ carry us. Think that through. He died on a cross. Nobody knows suffering like he. That's what God told Moses when he says, I know you are suffering. 
I've heard your cries, seen your affliction, and I know your pain. Because he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He died on a cross that he didn't deserve and rose from the grave and now says, I've conquered it all. Let me be your comfort. Let me be your hope. Tonight, I want to walk out here different. How about you? I'm not even aware of anything that I'm battling right now. Other than getting older, but he can carry me through that too. But there's pressures, challenges. I don't want to make Goliaths out of, you know, Minahunis. But tonight he wants to be your comfort and he wants to replace all those dumb things with him. Wouldn't that be great if we could walk out of here unburdened? And even if the suffering is, even if we're in the storm, it could calm us in it. So when everyone else is in some form of storm, we could talk about our storm-carrying God. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. So beautiful. So rich. So profound. I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've spoken. But Lord, just words are words. Just like hearing yours but not heeding them is still building a house but still in sand. Tonight, where your spirit is, there's freedom. If we heed your word, Jesus, we'd be your disciples and we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. You promised us these things. Tonight, maybe these are battles that we're so familiar with. These are battles where we seem, in some cases, we may feel more familiar with than you. They seem so big and scary or just so deeply entrenched or so a part of our makeup, a part of our character, a part of who we are, a part of whatever that that it would seem like a dream if they were gone from us. Well then, Lord, show us the reality of your freedom tonight. Lord, I know that there are cases where we're trying to avoid suffering, and yet, Lord, you're trying to use suffering. Show us, Lord, we'll never suffer without purpose. And that as the suffering increases, so does your comfort. We will never suffer beyond our comfort available. You are a friend that stays closer than a brother. never leave us nor forsake us and nothing can separate us from your love. So Lord, right now, just speak to our hearts what those things are. Some of us, we already know. Some of us, maybe we're not as clear on. Tonight, set us free. Lord, maybe not even from the suffering per se, but from what we've done with it. 
that we could see your power beyond our weakness. And yet, Lord, for all of this suffering Paul experienced, he still said that his light affliction cannot possibly compare to the weight of glory that will be revealed. Lord, in comparison, may we see our affliction is light. Keep us from being sissies. Being people that paper cuts our amputations. But rather, Lord, instead of crying and moaning to try to find someone to come in with a plaster, rather, Lord, emotionally, let us first turn to you for our comfort. I pray for every person here who is experiencing your pressure. Uh, not your pressure, but pressure. But not experiencing the comfort you offer amidst it. Increase our faith. Be our peace. Pray for those right now and they're just going through it. Tonight, be their comfort. Be their comfort. I pray for those who feel like they haven't much of a ministry because they haven't suffered like they've hurt others. But tonight, you've challenged that and said that the comfort we've received can be used to comfort anyone in any distress. Let us not fear the circumstance, but rather exalt the comforter. Jesus, we confess tonight, you died on the cross, suffered all of the sufferings, that our sins deserved. You tortured and died a horrible death for our sins. Buried just like Scripture promised. You rose again on the third day and offer us a life of comfort. I should say a life with you as our comfort amidst a tribulation-filled tumultuous ride to your throne eternally. We say yes, Jesus, to you as our Savior and Lord. And we commit, Lord, that as you want to save our family and our workers and our people we're around and we're bumping shoulders and elbows with, Lord, whatever suffering you've ordained, may it be to your glory in their benefit. The suffering that they would see how to endure the suffering in you, the consolation so they could see where comfort is really found. Lord, tonight now, overcome us, even as you told us, in the world we'll have many tribulations, but cheer up, because you've overcome the world. Now, Overcome us, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.